Hello, you're listening to Knight's History Cast, where we have conversations about history. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Central Florida's History Department. I'm Holly Baker, and I'll be your host for this week's episode of Knight's History Cast. Jeff DeGlaris talked with Professor Michelle Bratcher Goodwin about her presentation during the 2020 Dr. John T. Washington Lecture Series, hosted by the Africana Studies Program at the University of Central Florida. Professor Goodwin is Chancellor's Professor of Law at the University of California, Irvine School of Law. She presented on Overcoming Injustice, Why Women's Constitutional Citizenship Still Matters. Professor Goodwin is the founder and director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy and its Reproductive Justice Initiative. Have a listen to their conversation. Hi, Professor Goodwin. How are you? Um, I'm well. Your work has been <laughs> prolific, sophisticated, and bold, and I just wanted to say beforehand that it's a privilege to interview you. Could you start off by just uh, stating your name, position, and general area of research? Sure. So, I am Michelle Goodwin. I'm a Chancellor's Professor at the University of California, Irvine, where I have appointments in the School of Law, in the Department of Criminology, Law and Society, and Gender and Sexuality Studies, and our Health Sciences programs, and also our Stem Cell Research Center. Um, I direct our Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy, and at the same time, I'm very much involved on national and international issues, uh, serving on the Executive Committee of the National ACLU, uh, as well as other boards. You know, my work has been at the intersection of law and medicine for a very long time, but I've also worked in law and education, and within that broader sphere of law and medicine, uh, my work engages constitutional law, uh, civil rights, civil liberties, and it has expanded. So there are communities that I work with and speak with who know me only as that scholar who works on organ transplantation policy. Then there are other groups of scholars who know me as being that stalwart person working on reproductive health and rights and defending the interest of women and girls and and so forth. And then there are those who know me from the history and work that I've done in, in education law and then those who know that my work also fills in a number of other blanks along the way too. Um, I would say that what joins all of those together is has been this concern about how law engages with our bodies, with ourselves. You know, what what are the limitations that um, the state has when it relates to who we are and how we control our bodies, whether it be something related to our kidney or something related to our reproductive health or something related to our mental health. And when you think about it, much of this flows together, even though one might say, well, you know, when you're thinking about organ transplantation policy, that's really different than thinking about, you know, what's going to happen with someone's reproductive future. But then again, not so much. Can the state just come in the middle of the night and say, well, we demand your kidneys because you've got two and you only need one, right? Um, And so many other questions that, you know, relate to that. Where is our autonomy and our our ability to set the limits and guidelines with regard to the state and vis-a-vis other people related to us. So my talk tonight actually builds on my forthcoming book, which is out in about a week. And that book is called Policing the Womb. And it is 
uh, a book that took me nearly a decade to write, which is the longest time that it's taken me to work on a book. Along the way, I had a number of articles that were published from it in the Yale Law Journal and Northwestern Law Review and a number of other, you know, law reviews, California law reviews, um, working with great student journals across the country. Um, but the book itself marks how we think about what um, a woman or a girl's reproductive rights and legacy happen to be. And if I were to give you a quick teaser from it, it's from the very beginning of what I'll say. When Sojourner Truth, more than a century ago, gave a talk before a group of distinguished women and men during the time of antebellum slavery in our country. The speech was known as Ain't I a Woman, and people recall it as that. And people recall that she talked about how, as an enslaved black woman, that no one opened carriage doors for her. No one laid anything out special for her to walk over a puddle. But that's not all that she said. That's what history has depicted of the talk. But what Sojourner Truth also said was that she birthed 13 children, and every one of them snatched away from her arms. And she said that nobody but God heard her cry. And then she said, and ain't I a woman? And that's the part that we miss. And so when you think about this, and it has an emotive quality to it, and I think that when we think about reproductive health and rights, we tend to forget that, right? It's sort of like the broader categories of what we're talking about. And so this talk will engage that. In your upcoming work, yes. uh, Policing the Womb, you describe an emerging legal complex across several U.S. states, which surveils and in many cases criminalizes pregnant women. Uh, can you speak to this argument? How is this happening? And who is most likely to be affected by these kinds of legislation? And a great question. We could do this for an entire semester or a year. We should just take your show <laughs> on the road. So, you know, what the book speaks to is that one could say that there were poor women of color, especially black women, who were the canaries in the coal mine. Mm -hmm. But actually, if we go back before that, right? So I've mentioned Sojourner Truth, right? And in reality, if you were to think about Buck v. Bell, Buck v. Bell is a case from 1927 where the U.S. Supreme Court heard a case that involved a Virginia law that provided for the forced sterilization of poor people against their will. Now, at the time, Virginia was rounding up people who were poor and white. These were not women of color. Carrie, the subject of the uh, the subject of the dispute that went before the court, had been a poor 16-year-old white girl who had been raped by her employer's nephew. She became pregnant. The state of Virginia having this law was that uh, individuals who were considered morally and socially unfit, and also mentally unfit, but there was a broad category. Anybody really could be considered mentally unfit with very little due process. These people were subjected to this compulsory sterilization law. And so Carrie, with very weak legal representation, the person who represented her as a lawyer was actually a eugenicist himself. The case went up before the U.S. Supreme Court, and Chief Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes issued a ruling that today many constitutional law scholars 
have said is one of the most repulsive rulings ever in the U.S. history because he said three generations of imbeciles are enough. And the authority that the state has to impose vaccination is broad enough to cover, quote, snipping the fallopian tubes. He says, rather than to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. And with that, Carrie was forcibly sterilized. But it's important to note that 1927 is before World War II. The Nazis adopted this U.S. law. It served as the model for the eugenics law and platform in Nazi Germany. After a certain point, there were U.S. legislators that actually said during the German campaign to forcibly sterilize people and to implement their horrible campaign that later became known as the Holocaust, there were U.S. legislators that said they are beating us at our own game. Across the country, what that U.S. Supreme Court decision did in 1927 was to open the door for other states to also implement eugenics programs and forcibly sterilize people that they thought were unsuitable. I used to live in Minnesota and I taught as the Everett Fraser Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota. I mention that because Minnesota is known for its state's fairs. Many Midwest states are. Back in the 1920s and 30s, the state's fairs were not about just penning a blue ribbon on people who made the best blueberry pies or who nurtured and groomed the best cow. These were families. You can go to the Library of Congress website and see online fitter family contests uh, and people being awarded coins and ribbons for having the fittest family, the family that had the bluest eyes, the blondest hair. It's a part of our history that is really so important. So when you ask the question about the book and when does this surveillance all start, I could tell you a story about the 1980s and 90s involving poor black women being dragged out of hospitals in shackles and chains, literally in bloodied gowns, and some giving birth in prison toilets and on concrete floors because they went to their medical providers, some of whom had and some of these women had been drug users, and had told their doctors, look, I've been a drug user, but I'm pregnant, and I want help. There were campaigns in the United States that rather than give these women help, uh, the response was criminalization. But if I told you that story, it would ignore the plight of women like Carrie and others a century ago who suffered just as egregious plights. And interestingly enough, Bach v. Bell has never been overturned. Wow. I know. What it's does that, one say after that, right? Just, you just have a pause, very right? Compelling, yeah. Yes. Um, so um, we're at the University of Central Florida. I'm interested in a, maybe a, a Florida angle to this. So uh, do these issues you outline have any specific resonance to the people of Florida? Absolutely. So if we were to speed up the, the story of Carrie, and, and I'd include a case from the early 1940s that gets us closer to World War II, but involves a man. And this is Skinner v. Oklahoma. It is a case that involves uh, a poor man who was a chicken thief. He stole chickens in order to feed his family. And Oklahoma had a eugenics law in the books very interesting, it's that if you were a petty criminal, you could be sterilized against your will. 
But the law made exceptions for people who are white-collar criminals and people who embezzled. They were not subject thief to thief, but different kinds of thieves. Turns out if you embezzled hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, um, that would not qualify you for the state's program. The Supreme Court struck down this case in his case. Now, some may say, well, when it happens to be a man, the Supreme Court says, well, equality actually matters and equal treatment and substantive due process actually matters and that it may less with a woman. But you've asked me about the state of Florida and how is the state of Florida implicated? Well, the state of Florida is implicated in a history of eugenics. And then after that, eugenics changed, or one could say the process of surveilling women changed throughout the South uh, during the 1950s and 60s, uh, what became known as Mississippi appendectomies meaning that it was no longer then about poor white women, and World War II pushed much of this underground, right? It's, it's as if seeing this happen abroad uh, caused a check on what we were doing in the United States, such that it wiped away history. Most of my students, when we begin work talking about eugenics, they've never known of it in the United States. And so Florida is a part of that history, and then Florida became a part of the history involving the targeting of black women. So in the 1950s and 60s, there began a change in the Mississippi appendectomy as a euphemism known for girls as young as 11, 10, 12 being rounded up. And it's important to note during Buck v. Bell, girls as young as that too were forcibly sterilized. But in this case, their parents didn't know or could bring their kid in for a cold or fever or flu or anything like that. And doctors would say, well, we need the kids for an extra day with no thought that what would happen in the process were sterilizations. Florida's also become a space that has been implicated in the criminalization of women during their pregnancy. There are cases that date back to the 80s and 90s involving prosecutors using existing laws that applied only for child abuse um, and applying that to fetuses uh, during the 80s and 90s such that um, they were able to exert convictions, be they through plea deals or otherwise, in cases of women who had been pregnant and used drugs during their pregnancy. So you have utilized uh, interdisciplinary approaches throughout your work, notably in areas of law, biology, mm -hmm. and history. Can you speak to this? Mm -hmm. um, how have these overlapping approaches helped you to frame your arguments? I really appreciate that question because I like to turn an issue as if it were in a kaleidoscope and to be able to see it from multiple perspectives. And I'd say that, you know, part of it is also a my own personal history growing up with family members that had different uh, political perspectives and backgrounds. You know, I had one set of grandparents who taught me much about um, the beauty and the brilliance of the South, but also some of its shameful past and horrors. Um, my maternal grandparents were from Mississippi during Jim Crow, and that's a very informative history. It is impossible to care and love them and yet be in denial about what it was that they endured. 
On the other hand, I had paternal grandparents who exposed me to things such as the ballet, opera, things like that. Um, and having such wide different perspectives um, helps you to see things from multiple angles. And sometimes you come to the same conclusion. You've tested it, you know. I mean, it turns out on certain questions, let's say, involving women, right? It, you know, there's a time in this country, whether you happen to have access to an education or wealth, you still couldn't vote. And so it didn't matter whether you were from New England or whether you happen to be from Georgia, Florida, or Mississippi, you can't vote. And so, you know, turning again, you know, it's not an issue that just is one that involves people who happen to be socioeconomically disadvantaged. It's an issue that affects everybody. On the other hand, you can also see um, when you're turning the kaleidoscope where there happen to be exceptions, where class or one's address, where one's education provide certain exceptions. And again, if we're to think about the difference between Buck v. Bell or Skinner v. Oklahoma, same similar kinds of laws, one involving a woman, one involving a man, and different outcomes. And so this interdisciplinary approach has been something that um, has has, you know, one could say is inspired by my personal life, but also inspired by my education as well. I was really fortunate. Um, and, and this, I hope, speaks to your students. Really, really fortunate. I, I loved school. I love school. You know, I mean, I was just kind of built and made for the education, you know, with my teachers, you know, whether, you know, whether in elementary school being geeked out about being named a crossing guard. I remember my, like, <laughs> feeling so honored wearing that orange, <laughs> those orange straps around my body, you know. Um, or what I think specifically about, as an undergraduate, I was triple majored. So at the University of Wisconsin, there was an honors program uh, with triple majors. And so mine were in sociology, anthropology, and African languages and literature. So very early on, you know, even without necessarily having the sophistication to be able to fully articulate it, although I guess I did successfully enough to get through the program and, you know, do a, 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 a very engaged uh, honors thesis, still seeing issues from multiple angles has been very important to me and that too in law school and it's carried on as a scholar and I had just wonderful training when I think about one person in particular and there were many when I think about my work with uh, John Paris who's a bioethicist who hired me in my first year of law school I was his TA and also research assistant and so much about what I do in bioethics and biotechnology was informed by that early time and one thing that I will say and maybe this is the message to the professors as well is that um, the courage of scholarship. You know, it's one thing to regurgitate and repeat and be in the safe zone. Any of us can do that. And in the safe zone, that means no one's too scrutinous of our work. No one's too critical. We can go home at night without carrying the baggages of, you know, of what we've been thinking about all day with us. But then there's a different kind of scholar, the kind of scholar that digs and that plums and is willing to challenge and willing to think about things outside of the margins and outside of the box to test theories and examples and all of that. And I would say that's the kind of training that I had and I so value it to this day.
So you are the founder and director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy. Um, can you tell us a bit about the center's goals and especially about the Reproductive Justice Initiative? So, you know, yes, I, I'm happy to do that. Um, it is uh, a center, it's not my, the first center that I've directed. The, the first was many years ago when I first became a law professor and people say, don't do this. If you're a junior professor, don't take on that level of service. But I did the uh, presiding director of our Health Law Institute, which is one of the most highly rated in the country at the time, not at UCI. UCI, we're a younger law school. And uh, the person was stepping down, and I was just about to begin teaching at the law school, and I got a call from the associate dean saying, you know, we've got good news and we've got bad news, right? Um, and part of the bad news, you know, problems, well, what's going to happen with the center? We need somebody to direct it. And I took on doing so, and it was really quite expansive. So now, many years later, here I am, the founding director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy. And for the last five years, what we've sought to do is really engage in, you know, urgent contemporary conversations. And part of that involves history. I'm a firm believer that you can't talk about what's happening today without looking backward and saying what is. If you think about something like Ebola or the coronavirus, right, we could say, well, these are new questions for today in terms of, you know, do you quarantine people or not? No, they're not. You know, if we actually understand history, then we know Ellis Island and Angel Island were actually quarantine stations. You know, we revel in them as a part of the immigrant past. That's the way in which we've prettied up that. But no, those were quarantine stations. That's where, you know, the state decided, the country decided whether you get in or you're out. A lot of that had to do with your status. If you were pregnant, when you came through Ellis Island and they knew it, you were sent back. They would actually track hospitals to see if someone was giving birth within nine months of arriving to the United States. Because if so, back to Europe, right? So what the center does is it engages contemporary conversations, looking at the past and taking up issues of public health, taking up issues of gun violence, taking up issues of reproductive rights. And one of the things that we've done, as you've asked about the Reproductive Justice Initiative, is that we've sought to have a really diverse and engaged conversation. And part of this is just the shifting of what's happening in the United States. The issues surrounding reproductive health rights and justice have taken on levels that we just haven't seen in modern times. And I'll give some examples uh, about that and why I think we are where we are. You know, 30 years ago, it would not have been uncommon. In fact, it would have been the common thing that if you were in a high school in the United States, you were taking a class on sex education. It's basic, right? It's important for you to know about your body. Important to know what gets you pregnant, what doesn't get you pregnant. All of that, right? Just basic. And this was very important. Very important in terms of uh, furthering one's um, ability to be a functioning, healthy adult in the world. How can you be an adult in the world if you don't know how your body works? Right? Like, you know, how, how can you be? How can you learn about budgeting if you don't know how your body works and that you might do something to actually throw your budget off in a big way if you become pregnant or if your girlfriend becomes pregnant, right? So common. Today across the country, those programs have been gutted. If they even exist now, it's abstinence only. 
It's inconsistent with empirical evidence. It turns out in the states where that happens, you have the highest rates of teen pregnancy, highest rates of out of wedlock births, and guess what? The highest rates of sexually transmitted diseases as well. And I want to add to that. The United States now leads the developed world in terms of teen transmission of sexual infections, leads the developed world, right? There are countries that we would say are still developing, poor countries that do a better job of educating their kids about these issues than we do. But that's not all. We should all see it has an urgent issue that the U.S. leads the developed world in maternal mortality. In fact, it's safer to be a pregnant woman and give birth in Bosnia, a former war-torn country, than it is in the United States. The U.S. ranks around 50th, 51st in the world in terms of maternal health and safety. That's after Germany, England, France, Switzerland, you know, name all of the countries that we would say are our allied nations, and then name those that we'd say, oh, really? Oh, my gosh, we're behind those countries? Yeah. There are parts of Kenya that have, that have experienced poverty, drought, and so much more, where it's actually safer to give birth than in parts of Mississippi. Louisiana, Mississippi, parts of Florida, devastating. And so when we think about reproductive health and rights, one big problem is that our attention has been focused almost exclusively on abortion, although that's important too, right? It's an important history that we talk about. What we've missed are so much more. Think about syphilis. Nobody wants to think about syphilis, but, but I don't know if we put syphilis on the table. 30 years ago, the CDC said proudly, we have eradicated syphilis in the United States. Syphilis will not be a thing in the United States. Guess what? The CDC is now saying horribly, horrifically, it's back, including congenital syphilis. This relates to education. This relates to how hard now we've made it for people to have access to contraception. You know, when people um, talk about abortion rights, one of the things that I think has been missed from the conversation are empirics. One can decide what's best in one's heart in terms of thinking about these issues and what's best in terms of one's own health. There are medical reasons why a person might need to manage a miscarriage, otherwise a person might die. In such an instance, we call it a managed miscarriage, but it's really an abortion. But I want to remind the people who are listening today because we should think about these issues in terms of empirics and facts, and then let our own hearts and minds decide. In 1973, when the United States Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade, it was a seven to two opinion. The lead author of the case, Justice Blackmun, was a Republican, appointed by Nixon. When Congress adopted legislation that the poorest American should have access to good reproductive health care, the person who shepherded that legislation through Congress was George H.W. Bush. That's the father of the most recent president, George Bush. The person who signed that legislation into law, Richard Nixon. And I should mention, Roe v. Wade was a 7-2 opinion. I think I did, right? So it's like very clear it wasn't like almost. In 1966, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., um, that Nobel laureate whom 
we look up to in terms of his moral legacy and civil rights legacy, received Planned Parenthood's inaugural Margaret Sanger Award, 1966. And who was the treasurer of Planned Parenthood? Prescott Bush, the father of George H.W. Bush. What we've missed over time is a conversation that involves facts, plain old realities. And so now what drives conversations is a lot of political rhetoric that satisfies things that people want for elections, but not in terms of people's health. So while, you know, sort of political agendas are driving how we get people out to vote and demonize these kinds of things, instead we have children being prepared for cancer because we know that untreated chlamydia will lead to cervical cancer, and we know we have the highest rates in the developed world, and even rates higher than in places that are war-torn and poor. We know we have the highest maternal mortality rates in the developed world. In fact, two years ago, Texas was considered the deadliest place in the developed world for a woman to become pregnant. We know we have incredibly high rates now of unwanted and unprepared pregnancies, which now lead to what are called Medicaid-funded births. This means people who didn't want to become pregnant, couldn't find means not to be pregnant, now give birth to kids and the state ends up paying for it. And let me conclude with the following. A woman is 14 times more likely to die in the United States during pregnancy than she is by having an abortion. Now those are facts. We can rest with the facts with our God, with our ministers, with our head and our mind. But those are the facts. And what saddens me is that today we're in a space where this has become so complicated for girls and women. And boys too. Men too. And it saddens me that the very places where girls and women and young men could have informed conversations are now being closed up because of the political rhetoric that surrounds abortion. So when we close clinics, that means the places that provided educational resources, that provided contraception, that provided STD screenings, are gone. And that's what really sends me, and I think the the consequences of this crisis are going to be felt beyond poor people. It's one thing when poor people experience things, getting back to Carrie, right, case of Carrie Buck, right, and then folks can walk past it. But it's another thing when it begins to creep up on everybody, and that is, I think, what the real danger behind this is. Is there anything that we may have missed? Oh, my God. You know, as I've said, we could take (laughs) this show on the road. There is so much uh, to talk about. You know, um, I think that one of I mentioned before that I would talk about how we ended up in this time. And I think it's a multiple set of things. But one aspect of it is that, you know, if you were to think about the civil rights movement, it was understood that it wasn't just about Brown v. Board of Education, right? So it's not just about education. We know that there was segregation in housing, that there was segregation in parks, 
segregation or lack of ability to get you know, segregation in you know education universities um, housing employment all across that right so a civil rights movement understood that and so civil rights wasn't just about brown and can kids get access to an elementary or middle school right it was about this full landscape and I think that one aspect of a setback in terms of this broader conversation that we've just had is a failure to understand reproductive health and rights in the many aspects that I just talked about, right? Because if in fact that had been part of an agenda, but that's an agenda that has to engage poor people. If you're wealthy, you can find your way. But if you're poor, you rely on these kinds of things. And so a movement that fails to understand that reproductive rights includes if you want to be pregnant and be healthy and not die during your pregnancy, that it also includes education for young people so that they have the tools to be able to articulate and to learn about their bodies. That's so critically important. A reproductive rights movement has to include conversations about sexually transmitted diseases, right? Um, it's just important for our own health, all of these things. So, so I think that as kind of movements go, the failure to engage in those broader areas was part of the problem. And I think so much of that had to do with poverty and race. And so at the center of all of this, we have to be much more mindful, I think, about uh, poor, about poor Americans, working class Americans, uh, middle class Americans. We really do. Otherwise, we're just missing the mark. And, and I'll conclude by saying that it's a real uh, pleasure and honor for me to be with you and uh, to be visiting and having this conversation and to connect the threads that include history in these important conversations, um, I think that we can all do a better job in sort of lifting up these dialogues. And so I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to do that with you. Oh, I'm grateful to interview you. It's been wonderful. That was Professor Michelle Goodwin talking with Jeff DeGlaris about her presentation during the second annual Dr. John T. Washington Lecture Series called Overcoming Injustice, Why Women's Constitutional Citizenship Still Matters. For Knight's History Cast, I'm Holly Baker. Please subscribe to this podcast to hear future interviews and conversations.